will come back Tuesday and stay in session through Friday. The Senate will return Monday and stay in session through Thursday. Last week on the House floor, the House came back to work on Monday, September 14th, and voted to pass two bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House passed a rule to govern for consideration of H.R. 2574, the Equity and Inclusion Enforcement Act, H.R. 2639, the Strength and Diversity Act, H.R. 2694, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, and H.R.S. 908. Then the House took up H.R. 2639, the Strength and Diversity Act, and began considering amendments to the bill. Later Tuesday, the House passed the bill as amended by a vote of 248 to 167. On Wednesday, the House took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. Then the House took up H.R. 2574, the Equity and Inclusion Fairness Act. That bill passed by a vote of 232 to 188. On Thursday, the House took up and passed H.R.E.S. 908, condemning all forms of anti-Asian sentiment as related to COVID-19. Resolution passed by a vote of 243 to 164. Then the House took up and passed H.R. 2694, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Bill passed by a vote of two, I'm sorry, 329 to 73, and then they were done. This week on the House floor, they'll come back on Monday. I said, I'm sorry, I said Tuesday, and they'll begin consideration of 42 bills under suspension of the rules. No, I was confused. The House will actually come back on Monday. They will begin consideration of 42 bills under suspension of the rules, but no votes will be held on Monday. Any requested votes will be held until Tuesday when the, with the first vote set for 12 noon. On Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, the House will consider 15 more bills under suspension. And at some point, the House will likely take up a continuing resolution to fund the government past the end of the fiscal year on September 30. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate came back on Monday and began working on the nominations we discussed last week. By the end of the week, the Senate had voted to confirm the following judges to the following positions. Mark C. Scarcey to be U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California. Danny Blumenfeld to be a U.S. District Judge, also for the Central District of California, and John W. Holcomb to be a U.S. District Judge for the Central District of California. Then we had Todd Wallace Robinson to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of California, David W. Dugan to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of Illinois, and Stephen P. McGlynn to be a U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of Illinois. Then we had Ian D. Johnston to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Illinois, and Franklin Ulysses Valderrama to be a U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Illinois, and then they were done. So this week on the Senate floor, the Senate will return Monday afternoon to resume consideration of Edward Hulvey Myers to be a judge of the United States Court of Federal Claims for a term of 15 years. The first vote will be at 5.30 p.m. on the roll call vote on cloture on the Myers nomination. Then, based on the Majority Leader's cloture filings, I think the Senate will spend the rest of the week working on the following nominations. Andrea R. Lucas to be a member of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for a term expiring July 1, 2025. Jocelyn Samuels to be a member of the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission for a term expiring July 1, 2021. Keith E. Sonderling to be a member of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission for a term expiring July 1, 2024. John Charles Hinderecker to be a United States District Judge for the District of Arizona and Roderick C. Young to be a United States District Judge for the Eastern District of Virginia. Then to the Chad Wolf confirmation. On Tuesday, August 25th, President Trump nominated acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf to serve as the Secretary of Homeland Security. Wednesday, September 23rd, that is three days from now, Wolf will appear before the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs for his confirmation hearing. We included some background information on Wolf and DHS in the suggested reading. 
to coronavirus relief. I still don't have anything to report in terms of progress that's been made on negotiations regarding a new coronavirus relief bill. But I can report that in the middle of the week, just as frontline House Democrats were really beginning to ratchet up the pressure on Speaker Pelosi to begin bringing to the House floor smaller bills focusing in on individual aspects of coronavirus relief, President Trump, for some inexplicable reason, decided to throw her a lifeline and sent out a tweet calling on Republicans to go much higher on their number. That is, they should be willing to spend much more money than they had previously announced. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows confirmed that he would be happy to restart discussions with Speaker Pelosi, looking to spend something on the order of one and a half trillion dollars, or three times as much as Senate Republicans had previously supported. But that's it. That's all I have to report. And with the passing of Justice Ginsburg on Friday night and the consequent addition of a Supreme Court nomination fight to the mix, I don't really know if they're going to be able to get this negotiation done before the election. More on government funding. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, who sets the floor schedule for the House, has left space in the floor schedule this week for a vote on a continuing resolution. We still do not know how long the CR will run for. Congressional Republicans want it to run through mid-December, while Congressional Democrats want it to run a few months into the new year. That's because they're confident that Joe Biden will win the presidency and they will also recapture the Senate. And they'd very much like to write a funding bill without needing Republican votes to get it passed. Boyer said he wants to move the CR through the House this week, so the Senate will have plenty of time to deal with it on their side. So for now, we wait to hear the details. Now to saving the filibuster. The far left has been doing a lot of plotting over the last several months about how to move their agenda forward so they recapture the White House and the Senate. We know the top line elements of that agenda, the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, statehood for the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, public funding for federal election campaigns, efforts to shut down free speech, and the list goes on. They've got one small problem with moving that agenda, of course, the Senate filibuster, which was enshrined to protect minority rights in the upper house of our national legislature. As long as the filibuster is in place, Senate Democrats, even should they recapture the majority, would have to find a way to appeal to at least some number of Republicans in order to get to the magic 60-vote threshold to invoke cloture. The answer? End the filibuster. Remove it entirely. Turn the Senate into a majority-run institution, a smaller version of the House. Last week, Majority Leader McConnell spoke on the Senate floor about Democrats' plans to abolish the filibuster. He said, quote, Democrats have attempted to filibuster more nominations in the last three years and change than the sum total from all prior Senates from 1789 through 2016 added together. What was once a rare roadblock for the most controversial people has now become our daily norm. And let us not forget the cherry on top, because self-awareness apparently no longer exists. Our Democratic colleagues have chosen this very moment to argue that they shouldn't have to play by any of these rules if they ever get power themselves. But now, now they're saying that if they ever get power, they intend to tear up the rule book to force radicalism on the country, end quote. Abolishing the filibuster would defeat the purpose of the Senate as the framers envisioned it. One of the reasons they gave senators a six-year term instead of a two-year term is precisely because they wanted to insulate the members of the Senate from the twos and fros of short-term political pressure. Ensuring there were differences between the House and Senate is one of the reasons senators were originally chosen by their home state's legislatures rather than by popular vote. We gave up on that idea more than a century ago when we ratified the 17th Amendment to the Constitution and began electing U.S. senators by popular vote the same way we elect members of the House of Representatives. 
but we still held on to some of the other unique features of the Senate, the filibuster being the most obvious. In case you're curious, no, the filibuster is not mentioned in the Constitution. It is not a feature of the Constitution. It is a rule of the United States Senate. It was made possible in 1806 when, following the advice of Vice President Aaron Burr, the Senate modified its rules to remove the motion for the previous question, which was a parliamentary means by which a simple majority could end a debate and force a vote on the underlying question at issue. By removing that rule for ending debate, it made never-ending debate possible. The filibuster has been changed over the years. When it, was first, when it first became common practice in the mid-1800s, it was virtually impossible to break a filibuster. Then, in 1917, as part of a debate over a proposal to arm U.S. merchant ships as the United States prepared to enter World War I, the Senate adopted for the first time what we now know as the cloture rule. The threshold for invoking cloture and breaking a filibuster was set at a two-thirds majority. Then, in 1975, the threshold was lowered again to a three-fifths majority. If Democrats recapture control of the Senate, the hard left will go all out to pressure Schumer and his colleagues to change the way the Senate does business. They will do everything in their power to obliterate obstacles to their agenda. Now to the Supreme Court. On Friday evening, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, creating a vacancy on the Supreme Court just six and a half weeks before the election. The president's term of office is four years from January 20 of the year following the election until January 24 years hence. President Trump's term of office extends until January 20, 2021. Until that time, he is president of the United States with all the attendant imperatives and responsibilities, one of which is to nominate individuals to fill vacancies on the federal bench when they occur, even to nominate Supreme Court justices six weeks before a presidential election. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell knows this, and he issued a statement Friday night in which he declared that President Trump's nominee to fill the vacancy would receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. Interestingly and importantly, McConnell did not say when that vote would occur, either before the election or after. He merely declared that it would occur. That said, I think it's clear that he would prefer to hold this confirmation vote before the election, because there's no telling what might happen in the lame duck session after the election. That would likely be heavily influenced by what happens in the election. So we know the majority leader of the U.S. Senate wants to fill that vacancy with a Trump pick, and we believe he wants to do it sooner rather than later. Democrats and the media predictably went nuts. The minority leader of the U.S. Senate, Chuck Schumer, naturally took McConnell's statement from early 2016 when the late Justice Antonin Scalia passed away and played it back against him. That was when, as you'll recall, McConnell used his power as Senate Majority Leader to deny a floor vote on the confirmation of Merrick Garland, President Obama's pick to fill the vacancy created by Scalia's passing. What we're going to see for the next several weeks is a reversal of what happened in 2016. Republicans will use what Schumer said in 2016 against him, and Democrats will use what McConnell said in 2016 against him. For instance, on February 22, 2016, shortly after Scalia's passing, Schumer tweeted, quote, Attention, GOP. Senate has confirmed 17 SCOTUS justices in presidential election years. Hashtag do your job. Now, this is important. The situation we faced in 2016 was fundamentally different from the situation we face today. In 2016, Leader McConnell refused to move the Garland nomination because to do so, he said, would violate a Senate precedent that went all the way back to the presidency of Grover Cleveland in 1888. That was the last time a Senate controlled by one party confirmed a Supreme Court nominee from a president of a different party. 
Today, of course, the White House and the Senate are both controlled by the same party. So it's a very different situation than the one we faced in 2016. Democrats and the media, predictably, will ignore this. They will do their best to frame a false narrative about 2016. They will say that in 2016, Leader McConnell and his Republican colleagues took the position that a Supreme Court vacancy that occurs in the final year of a presidential term should not be filled. They will be wrong to do that. How wrong? Well, Vice President's Chief of Staff Mark Short, Vice President Pence's Chief of Staff Mark Short was on CNN's State of the Union Sunday morning and was interviewed by Jake Tapper. Short said, quote, as some of your guests have commented already this morning, the reality in history is that there's been 29 vacancies during a presidential election year and 29 times presidents have put forward a nominee, end quote. For those keeping score at home, you might find it interesting to know that the very first time it happened was way back in 1800 when John Marshall was nominated to replace Oliver Ellsworth, who retired as Chief Justice in December 1800, after the states had chosen their presidential electors, but before the Electoral College votes had been counted. Interestingly, Marshall was nominated only after former Chief Justice John Jay was nominated and confirmed by the Senate to return to his former position, but he declined the appointment. The reason I bring up this particular case is because of when it took place. In 1800, roughly a decade after ratification of the Constitution and the launch of the federal government of the United States, the nomination and confirmation of a new Chief Justice took place during the lame duck session in between presidential administrations. And it was done by many of the same political leaders who had debated and ratified the Constitution just over 10 years earlier. Nevertheless, we've got a problem on our hands. The Republican majority in the Senate right now is 53 to 47. That means if the confirmation vote were to take place before the election, McConnell could lose as many as three votes, creating a 50-50 tie that would be broken by a vote cast by Vice President Pence. If, on the other hand, the vote were to take place in a lame duck session after the election, the Republican majority in the Senate could be down to 52 to 48 if Arizona Republican Senator Martha McSally loses her race to Democrat challenger Mark Kelly in the contest to fill out the unexpired portion of the late Senator John McCain's term. If Kelly were to win, the Arizona governor could move to have Kelly take over the seat before January. Now, with a 53 to 47 majority, McConnell needs at least 50 Republican votes on hand to ensure a successful confirmation vote. Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins, who's in a barn burner of a re-election campaign, precisely because she stood strong in support of President Trump's last Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, has announced that she believes the president elected on November 3rd should make the decision on who should fill the Supreme Court vacancy created by Justice Ginsburg's death. And Alaska Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski, who did not vote for Kavanaugh, announced that she would not vote to confirm a new Supreme Court justice before the inauguration of a new president. So far, those are the only two Republican senators who have come out since Justice Ginsburg's passing and said they will not vote to confirm a new justice before the election. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court will open its next term in a few weeks with just eight justices. While some in the media are calling that a 4-4 balance, it's actually a 5-3 balance if what you're looking at is simply which party's president nominated the justices. Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Stephen Breyer were nominated by Democrat presidents. Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, John Roberts, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh were nominated by Republican presidents. Now, 
Roberts, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh vote with the liberals often enough, I guess, that we probably should call it a four-to-four balance. One case the Supreme Court will be hearing while it's short, one justice, will be the state's challenge to the constitutionality of Obamacare based on the fact that the individual mandate tax penalty was reduced to zero in the 2017 Tax Cut and Jobs Act. When the Supreme Court votes to tie on an issue, the lower court ruling stands. That means that if the court hears the appeal and votes four to four on it, the lower court ruling would stand. And that means that Obamacare would be overturned. Stay tuned. And that's our Washington report for this week.